Last week on the show, we spoke of a location, Calabasas, California. And for our season two finale today, we're going to focus on location again, but this time we're going to zoom in on the American South. If you'll remember from season one in my chat with my dear friend, Carla Jean Whitley, she mentioned that Margaret Wrinkle's Late Migrations was a book that meant so much to her. Margaret's newest book, Graceland at Last, came out this fall, and I got the honor of chatting with her about it. Margaret lives in Nashville, but has experiences all over the South. I am based in Birmingham, Alabama, where Margaret lived as a child. We had much to discuss in this gripping conversation. Before we dive into it, first, a little about Margaret. She is an opinion columnist for the New York Times, mostly focusing on culture, nature, and politics. Writing for the New York Times should tell you what you need to know about her talent as a writer, but even more interesting to me, she is a lovely person. Take a listen to our conversation. Margaret, thank you so much for being here today. I told you this offline a moment ago, but your name has been mentioned on this show before, actually. One of my guests, Carla Jean Whitley, called your Late Migrations one of the best books she had ever read. So after reading Graceland at Last, that's going to the top of my list because I really enjoyed Graceland at Last. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, Carla Jean. I'm sure she will love to hear you say her name. So this book is subtitled Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. So as I was just telling you, I too am a Southerner, a transplant Southerner, but 12 years into my Southern journey, nonetheless, I'm based in Birmingham, Alabama, and you so succinctly and beautifully capture this part of the country in this book. So you live in Nashville. I know you have life experiences in Alabama and South Carolina as well, and probably other states too, as Southerners tend to do. So what leads you to write about this part of the country? What compels you to tell its story? I guess, um, you know, that, that old saw in uh, writing classes to write what you know, I'm yeah. sure that's part of it. Uh, I lived, I, I, my uh, childhood was in uh, Lower Alabama, and then I went to high school in Birmingham and college at Auburn. So I was all over the state of Alabama, and then I married a Georgia boy uh-huh. whose parents didn't leave Southwest Georgia until you know after we'd been married for twenty five years. So I was down there a whole lot. Went to grad school in South Carolina. Have lived in Tennessee for. 34 years mm-hmm. and um so basically what it comes down to is that that's all that's what I know and it's what I love this is the place I love mm-hmm. it's also the place that torments me in some ways um I think that's what um I think that might be a lot of what love is is uh to to love beyond the things that worry you or trouble you about a place Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't attempt to explain this region. I think it's far too complex and too multifarious for one person to try to explain to somebody who's never been here or who hasn't ever known anybody from here. 
but I do try to write as honestly as I can about my own experience um, of this place. And when things happen in the news that affect Southerners, I think that it sometimes makes sense for some more, more sense for somebody who is in and of a place to try to understand it mm -hmm. um, and write about it than it is to have somebody coming in from outside and hoping to grasp all these nuances in just a short visit. Because it is a very nuanced place, it really is. And it's, it's a different culture. I grew up in Kansas. I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but if not, I grew up born and raised in Kansas and then have, I moved to the South when I was 22. And it is, it is a different place than where I grew up similar, but also very different as well. And so I don't even know if you can dial this down to one or two examples, but what has been, this is a two-parter, what has been the most difficult part about writing about the American South and what has given you the most hope? I think the most difficult part is trying to convince people who don't live here that we are more than the stereotype that you don't, you think you know us if you've watched Andy Griffith reruns or if you've watched the Beverly Hillbillies or Dukes of Hazard or whatever more recent um, pop culture versions of the South might entail. Um, that is not who we are. We, we, there are obviously some truths in all stereotypes, but there, we are a lot more than that. And it's, it, it, it it's extremely difficult to persuade people that that's so. They think they know what they know based on not just pop culture, but the headlines. They think they understand and they don't understand and they don't like to be told they don't understand. Mm -hmm. So that's the most difficult thing. The thing that gives me hope is always to kind of dial in closer. Anytime you look at the macrocosm of any situation, it can be so disheartening and discouraging, especially right now, with so many um, calamities coming on us all at once, natural disasters, climate change, political upheaval and, 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 and fury. And then of course this pandemic that's is seemingly endless now. Yeah. Um, so when you look at the big picture, it can be really discouraging. But when you look at the people who are working so hard to make things better, who, who are standing outside prisons on execution nights and praying, who are working to get voters registered and then to get them to the polls on election day, um, when, you, when you look at people who are working hard even though it's discouraging, it can really lift your spirits. It can give you a lot of hope. Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question. So I'm going to read just a short passage from Graceland at last. So you write, quote, many, many people are trying to make things better here. People who recognize evil when they see it and are working to vanquish it. People who understand that hate is sometimes a carapace for pain and who haven't given up hope of turning hatred into love. 
people in the South are both damaged and, and damaging, but they are not only those things. That is so beautiful. And by the way, I, I had, I'm a writer and I consider myself to have quite a large vocabulary and you taught me a new word and my mother, carapace. We had to look that up. So um, not, not that I expect you to have all the answers, but per what you just said about the most difficult thing, how can and how will the South ever repair its reputation from years past and in some senses years present even? You know, I, I guess there's a part of me that thinks we we will not like this this burden we carry as the former slaveholding states, this burden we carry as the uh, cultures that cast out the indigenous peoples, the peoples who were here first and whose lands we took, that will likely haunt us probably for all time. Yeah. And in this and in this uh, politically polarized age, especially, even if it were possible to make the kind of reparations that would in some way overcome that past, um, I'm not sure that there are people that, I think that there are a whole lot of people who wouldn't allow us to do it even then. Mm. I think that this is just the age we're in but I'm not sure repairing our reputation is even what we should be aiming for. I think we should be just aiming to do better. And if people don't see us doing better, that's between them and their God. You know, we just do what we can to make the world a little bit better than we found it when we got here. And that's, a, that's enough really, maybe, Maybe people will come around, but I've been at this uh, writing for the New York Times long enough now to wonder if there's even any chance of rehabilitating a reputation in the South. I mean, we're just so busily, our, our quote unquote leaders are so busily, you know, digging us deeper into that hole. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard. I think the most we can probably hope for is for people outside the region to recognize that there's a lot of complexity here and it's not purely it's not as simple as they might think or as they might prefer to think. Well, that's that's a great question. I you know, I'm a southerner reading Graceland Alas, so it resonates with me. How do those who live outside of the south tend to react to your work? Like your editors at the New York Times are the many people I'm sure that read your work and, and reach out to you. It's funny. I'm not sure that the editors at the New York Times are very representative of readers generally. I mean, they are hyper dialed in to the news, obviously, and to the, um, the political nuances of not just the South, but everywhere. Um, the funny thing I experience almost always when I write about nature is not that this is a Mason Dixon uh, failure of communication, but this is that this is an, you know, an urban rural failure of communication. A lot of times they just don't have, they'll put a picture of just a random orange butterfly with a, an, essay about monarchs and I'll have to go y'all this is not a monarch it's it's orange but it's a <laughs> gulf fritillary not a monarch uh -huh. you know 
something like that, that, that can be a little bit different. Um, and I'll tell you the truth. I don't know a whole lot about what people think. Um, uh, other than the people that I, you know, I work with be because like, uh, my publisher is in M Minneapolis, Milkweed Editions, the, the publisher of both Late Migrations and Graceland at Last, mm -hmm. and also of my next book that's coming out in 2023. Mm -hmm. They oh, are right. based in Minneapolis, so mm -hmm. they're very not Southerners at all. Nobody up there is from the South, mm -hmm. um, so I don't know a lot beyond those folks and um and i hesitate to make assumptions based on how i get tagged on twitter or facebook or Instagram. yeah don't 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 make assumptions on the human race based off of what you get tagged on on twitter that's been one of my life lessons lately <laughs> i mean twitter is a hell site for sure but uh -huh. it is where breaking news takes place and you just really can't write for a daily newspaper and not pay attention to it but but again i don't know that those folks are representative valid that's valid so i want to i want to read another passage from the book because i just have to so beautiful so you write quote the south has always been so bound up in both beauty and suffering that it isn't possible to untangle one from the other i think that's why this region keeps giving birth to more than its fair share of writers to love a person is always to live in spite of the faults that intimacy reveals and so it is with a place to love the South is to see with clear eyes both its terrible darkness and its dazzling light to spend and to spend a lifetime trying to make sense of both, end quote. So other than the obvious that it is typically the topic of your writing, how has being a Southerner influenced your craft of writing? I would say it's primarily being from a storytelling culture I don't write fiction, or at least I haven't. And um, but I I did grow up listening to my elders tell stories on the porch. So if you you know my grandparents had a porch that went across the full front of the farmhouse, and uh, and for most of my childhood, the television reception there was very poor. It was it was a pretty isolated place. And so that's how people passed the time. And when you grow up in a culture where people tell stories, not just on the porch, but around the dinner table, um, you just imbibe that narrative, uh, that, that, that structure of narration in a way. And, um, and so I guess that's probably the most, uh, the thing that comes to my mind in, in response to that question is that, you know, I know a writer um, from Tennessee who who tells a story about going to a dinner party. I won't say where because it'll just make everybody in that state mad. Mm -hmm. But it was somewhere outside the South. And, and his, the punchline of his story is that the dinner party lasted 10 minutes because nobody there could tell a story. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, the front porch sitting, just talking, telling, I mean, even that I'm sure that takes place much less than it did in years past, but I mean, there's nothing like that. And I've, I've just sit in a spell, you know, and, and it's, it's, just, it's, it's so true. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Mississippi, which is, um, as you say, beautifully say, 
filled to the brim with both terrible darkness and dazzling light. And there's so many writers that are products of Mississippi. And I think that it's because- Yeah, Mississippi is just like the crown jewel of the entire South in terms of generating writers. And music too, which in its own way is writing, right? You know, songwriting and and just, it's just maybe more truncated than a book or a magazine article. But um, you write that the American South is in the midst of a profound change and that we are quote unquote fighting back. I agree with you, but can you unpack- that for our listeners who might not live here? I think it's really um, discouraging to people like me, and, and it sounds like people like you, who, um, who are, 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 like, for example, who, who believe that the climate is changing and that, and that those changes are going to be devastating to humanity and to all other living things, and that the changes have been brought about by our own behavior. Just to use one example, it's it's the every time there's an this is fresh in my mind because we've just had a huge uh, natural disaster in the form of a hurricane hitting the Louisiana Mississippi coast, mm-hmm. and even before that, in Tennessee, uh, Middle Tennessee was hit with devastating um, floods. And anytime there's that kind of disaster. People will be all over social media saying, well, they deserve to drown. They don't believe in climate change. And it's like, you know what? First of all, no one deserves to drown because of political opinion. That's what I'm talking about with Twitter. I just stay (laughs) off of it as much as I can. And second of all, you know, it's not true that everybody down here doesn't believe in climate change. I believe in climate change. (laughs) The vast majority of people believe in climate change and, and, and even here. It's the political leaders who act as though it's not real, but you can't convince somebody who's created this stereotype in their minds. And for example, you don't ever hear, I don't ever hear anyway, um, people saying, oh, those people in California deserve to burn up because they live in a fire prone area, or those people in the desert Southwest deserve to to, um, die of thirst because they live in a desert. You don't hear that, but you do hear it about the South. There's a, yes, that, there, I can't think of a region that stirs up more emotions, whether they're good or bad, than the South, at least in this country. I think that's probably, it does probably go back to our slaveholding past. Um, but I also think it probably has to do with the fact that we have a regional identity. Um, we, we, almost always take a kind of pride in being from the South. And maybe people in other regions don't see their regional, um, their location as such a huge part of their identity. Their and individual- I want to clarify that when we say we have Southern pride, and I'm going, I, I know that this will apply to you as well. We do not mean what you think of when we say <laughs> the Confederate flag and all of that no, it's funny, That's you know, I grew up with, um, you know, I don't, I didn't know a single person growing up and I grew up in the 60s when, you know, the 60s made what we're going through right now look like romper room. I mean, it, and it does, it, I didn't know anybody who thought that the Civil War should have been won by the South. Yeah. They might disagree about uh, how things should change or how quickly things should change, but they would never have said 
that things should stay the way they were. Nobody I knew would have said that. Yeah. And like you and I can have Southern pride, but that does not mean what maybe the reputation would say with, with the Confederate paraphernalia. That is not what we mean. And that's what I point out in the introduction to Graceland at last. There's so many places in the South, even during the Civil War, who took a position that opposed the Confederacy or opposed secession generally. And so it's never been just like regional pride. I'm glad you clarified that. It's never been as simple as people think. No. I, mean, I think it's more a matter of loving the land. Yeah. Being imprinted on a certain landscape like a baby duck. And and also loving the people. That's that, what I was about to say. It's the people for me. Yeah. People, it's it's the it's the food, it's the culture, it's the tradition, the um just it's it's just when I, I didn't grow up in the South, but I say I got here as, as quickly as I could because my <laughs> father is from the South and I always felt that was like my, it's where my soul belongs. It's, it, it's who I am. And, um, and, and I couldn't imagine leaving at this point. I'm going to do a huge, gigantic, massive pivot <laughs> from, from that to, right. to Jimmy Carter, because I have to ask you about this in the book you write about you know, one of my absolute Southern bucket list items. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this happen because COVID, as you said, is never ending, it seems. But seeing President Jimmy Carter teach Sunday school in Plains, Georgia, I'm dying to make that trip and see it happen. I hope I can. What was that like? I know you write about it in the book, but just, you know, more, expound on that for me because it's something I'm, I'm so wanting to do. Well, I want to, I, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but he isn't doing it anymore. Like ever again? Well, his he's in very precarious health right now. And I think as long as COVID um, is an an issue at all, uh, I, I, I don't think he I know, or I'm so loves mad him, wants him to be exposed to strangers. Um, certainly not an entire church full of strangers, but right. he is, you know, and I, I, I'm amazed. I find I had so many opportunities to go and I like he moved back to Plains, Georgia in January after the after the inauguration of Ronald Reagan in in January of 1981. I was in school at Auburn two hours down the road, but I didn't have a car. And then my um, my in-laws lived in a little town, maybe, maybe 20 miles from Plains. And all those years, I didn't go because you really have to get there. As I write in the essay, you have to get there by like 5.45, 6 in the morning at the latest to have any hope of getting in that sanctuary. And it's a big sanctuary. Mm -hmm. But it was truly... It was truly a transformative experience because it had been a really discouraging time in the news. We we had had a president who was in every way the opposite of Jimmy Carter. Um, Jimmy Carter was always so gracious. He's the epitome in, uh, of what we of the best uh, way of uh, the best thing we think of when we think of a Southern gentleman. That's um, exactly very, what I was about to say. Yeah. Words. He's a Southern gentleman. He is the best uh, in, in the in the best kind of way, not in the way that most people probably think. But it's um, I mean, he's he's always been a fierce 
fierce advocate for civil rights, a fierce advocate for women's rights. Um, and, and yet he is able to talk about his faith um, and to hang on to his faith. It, he does, it, 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 Jimmy Carter is, I mean, he, he, he did ultimately have to leave the Southern Baptist um, church because of their position on women um, and women's roles in the church, but he, he remained a Baptist and he is still, and he, every Sunday um, for years and years, decades, he would go in there and he would teach a lesson based on a reading from the Bible. And he does it in a kind of um, call and response way. He'll ask a question and then the congregation, somebody from the congregation will call out an answer and he'll say, close, but what about this? And then somebody else will call in, call out another possibility. And it's really, um, it's, it, it, he uses those, those Sunday school lessons to encourage people and to give them hope and to tell them not to give up on trying to be better people and make the world a better place. And it's just very reassuring to hear somebody of his who's made that much difference in the world. I mean, think about his role. I mean, he's he's the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize and he mm -hmm. he's still telling us that we can change things for the better. We can make the world better for other people. I'm, I'm going to kick myself for the rest of my, I, I, I hope maybe, I mean, of course, saying it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. Maybe after COVID, although when on earth will that be that um, uh, I just, I had so many opportunities and I squandered them and that's a whole other podcast. But anyway, Well, there's a wonderful, um, the, the Maranatha Baptist church in Plains, Georgia has those, all of those um, Sunday school lessons um, recorded and oh, and you can, and I did, I ordered a, a, a DVD of the one I went to. So I would always oh, have it. Okay. That gives me, I, that it won't be the full experience, but at least I can get. The it gives you an idea of how it gets, because it is very, it's very church recording. You know, it's not highly produced, um, you know, so it's professional. Real. Yeah, it is. Well, my last question for you as we wrap up is other than you know, go read Graceland at last, <laughs> what would you tell a non-Southerner about this complicated place we call home? I would say, come on down. See it for yourself. Yes, exactly. The book is poetry. Thank you for it. And thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. It's been just an honor to talk with you. Well, friends, that wraps up our time together for season two. I briefly considered ending the show after season two because I have accepted a full-time writing role and I'm back in the office 40 hours a week. But you know what? I just couldn't do it. I'd Rather Be Reading is a passion project of mine. So here's how season three and beyond will go. And by the way, we already have some great guests lined up. Instead of expecting content every single week, I'm just going to drop interviews as I do them. There may be one every week. There may be one every couple of weeks. There may be one every month. I don't really know yet, and that kind of drives my type A self crazy, but what I know is this. 
I'm only going to be bringing you the absolute best books to read and conversations with the absolute best authors about compelling subjects. So make sure to stay tuned for all that we have in store because as ever, the best is yet to come. And thank you to all of my guests in seasons one and two for getting us this far. I am having the time of my life talking about the best nonfiction books. As always, let me know what you're reading and loving at hello. I'd rather be reading at gmail.com and follow rate and review our show. We'll be back very soon with more compelling conversations until then take care of yourself.